that your bulletin insert is unusually massive today, um, but don't worry. Uh, we're going to go fast. I hope you've all had enough coffee. Uh, as the title indicates, the gospel message will be front and center today, but don't think that just because you may already be familiar with it, um, that you don't need to hear it again. All right. I'm, I am convinced that our culture and historically every culture are, are just saturated with counterfeit, I'm going to put air quotes there, gospels, that they make great claims to those that believe them, but they never measure up. The true gospel of the Bible is the only trustworthy message to guide us through this world and into the next. So if you would, please uh, open your Bibles. The first passage we're going to look at today is Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to, to just be forewarned that there is going to be a lot of different scriptures uh, in use today. And um, I hope you have your Bibles out, and I hope you're trying to keep up. Because uh, you, you don't need to take my word for it. You know, you need to be able to see it. And this, this is all New Testament. So that's helpful. If you don't know where the books of the Bible are, just know we'll be in kind of the last fifth or so of it, the last 20% of the Bible. Um, all right, so remember um, Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul, his partner Barnabas, uh, they've, they've just come back from the first missionary journey, which they started out with their home base there in Antioch, and they were spending a, um, a lot of, you know, they went around all these different places, came back, and they were spending time with the disciples. That's how chapter 14 ended. But, starting in chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so it, it took me a while to figure out whether to keep going or to, to stop just after verse 2, because uh, once the story gets going, there's a lot to it. And so I think it's good for us to pause and to consider what the church was already having to deal with in, in, in just the first decade or so of its existence. Um, already, there were, there were people trying to dilute the purity of the gospel message, and, uh, and Paul rightly understood this to be a major problem. And in, in fact, he was convinced, he was convinced that continuing that direction could spell spiritual disaster for anybody who accepted that falsehood instead of the true gospel. So we're going to start again at verse 1. Okay, But some men came down from Judea. Where's Judea? Israel, thank you, yes. Okay, remember, they, they were in Antioch, right, which is 300 miles roughly north of Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judea. Who lived in Judea? Judeans. Jews, right, Judeans, Israelites, right. Okay, so there would have been a lot of Jewish Christians. In fact, almost all Christians early on were Jewish converts who believed on Jesus Christ. And they rightly realized that he had fulfilled the law and the prophets, and he had, uh, he had inaugurated the new covenant, but, but there would be others who were trying to kind of squeeze Christianity into their own mold. And to them, it was just another sect of Judaism, basically. So anyway, they came from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now, th this is where... This is where it's super important for us to take notice because these men from Judea, I'm going to move this down because it's popping. All right. These men from Judea were actively trying to convince other people uh, to accept a different version 
of what had already been taught by the apostles. And so simply put, if you were just going to make it one succinct sentence, which I think is what Luke did here, their message was, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So let's pause here, okay? Why would they say that? Under the old covenants, the, the only way a Gentile would be considered an Israelite was that they would submit to the law, including circumcision, okay? And circumcision was the physical mark of a Jewish man, and obedience to the law indicated submission to the Lord. But here's the thing, okay? That was the old covenant. What these dudes were saying was completely wrong. Now, did they know that? I don't think so. I mean, I would think surely not, but, but they were operating under the old assumption that only biological Jews and Jewish converts were able to be considered God's people. And thus it... It made perfect sense to them that a person couldn't be a Christian unless you were a Jew first, okay? Uh, the people that believed this, that promoted this line of reasoning were called Judaizers. But again, the problem is that they were, they were wrong, and, and not just sort of wrong, you know, wrong, but, but like super incredibly, really crazily wrong, intensely wrong, shockingly wrong. So wrong, in fact, that, that Paul later wrote pretty much an entire book of the Bible to address this falsehood. Anybody know the book? What? Galatians. Thank you. Yes. We read part of it this morning. And, and right now, we're actually we're going to go back and revisit a few of those verses. Um, in this epistle, Paul was writing to Christians who were falling for the argument, okay, that a person couldn't be a Christian couldn't be saved unless they are circumcised and following the Jewish law. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning to, to a, uh, excuse me, so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And, and here's a key thought, okay? This is important. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so right off the bat, we're being told that a distorted gospel is a problem. And we'll see later how much of a problem that can be. But for now, let's read the next two verses. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats himself. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You think maybe Paul felt kind of strongly about this? You know, the Greek word for accursed is the word uh, anathema, meaning under a sentence of eternal condemnation. This is usually the first passage I go to whenever, uh, whenever I talk with Mormon missionaries. Um, their, their theology essentially teaches that they've received a different gospel um, they'll tell you it, it's the same gospel, but it is not. Um, it's from an angel whose uh, name is, yep, he's an Italian, I guess. He's a, um, anyway, it's, uh, I'm not going to talk about that much. Uh, long story short, the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel that neglects, that ignores the substitutionary atonement and the imputed righteousness of Christ which if you don't know what those phrases mean, don't worry about it. We're going to get there shortly, okay? So we'll define those. 
the Judaizers essentially taught salvation by work of following the law, which Paul refers to as damnable. This is a big deal, okay? And we read in Acts 15, verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I want you to just pause there. Of course they made a big ruckus about this, and they argued against it because it was, it was putting souls at risk. It was putting human souls at risk by supplanting the true gospel. So anyway, they're relying on the Old Covenant, uh, which Paul also addresses in Galatians when he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you can't obey the law perfectly, you're hosed. That's basically what he's saying, okay? And, and guess what? You can't do it. And he goes on to explain why the law isn't good enough. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And we're going we're to come back around to that in just a little bit. But I want to continue here. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, meaning as a basis of salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision to be saved that he is obligated to keep the whole law, which is impossible. He says, you have been severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, relying on something that you can do other than God's grace on the basis of what Jesus accomplished, that is an offense against the gospel that leads people to hell. I mean, did you, did you catch that? Hell is a big deal. Acts goes on, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to, up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. We're going to get into that discussion. It's a long discussion. We're going to get into that next week, okay? Um, for today, I want to focus Focus on the gospel that Paul is so adamant about keeping pure, about, about keeping it undiluted. Anybody remember? We read it earlier today, so I hope you remember. Um, where there's a, a summary, a brief summary that Paul gives of the content of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, that's right. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians 15. I reference it a lot. I'm kind of hoping you guys eventually will go, oh, yeah, yeah, 1 Corinthians uh, just starting in verse 1, Paul writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. What he's saying is, the following message is what you need to know, to accept, in order to be saved. Okay, so he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared, and he gives this long, long list of witnesses to the living Christ, including himself. So they're, they're right there. That, that is the gist of the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas preached. We see it all over the book of Acts. So Christ, whom we know is Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, died for our sins as, as payment for our sins, and was buried as prophesied, and he rose from the dead, also as prophesied, and was seen by multiple 
eyewitnesses. That, that, that little section right there died for our sins. That's super deep. That's super important. It's a, it's a reference to the substitutionary atonement, okay? Which, that is the official name for Jesus taking our place by paying the price that we earned with our sins. That is the substitutionary atonement. He took upon himself the wrath of God instead of us, instead of us having to take it on. And then we receive his imputed righteousness because of his perfect obedience to God. And, and so, uh, just to kind of try to define it, that, that is the perfect life of Christ is essentially given to us. We're giving credit for that. And so this, this imputed righteousness makes us sinlessly perfect in God's sight and thus acceptable to him. Okay, so, so again, the gospel is about who Jesus is and what God did through him. That, that's the message that brings salvation because through it we recognize our desperate need for a Savior. And we also recognize that, that the Savior himself is Christ. And we can put our trust in him. We can put our trust in him and in, and in what God did through him for our salvation. So if, if you truly believe this, if, you, if you've put your faith in Christ, Scripture indicates that, that you are born again to new life in him. However, today, just like in the first few years of the church, there have been many counterfeit so-called gospels that have tried to draw our attention away from the true gospel. And I want to spend some time today discussing some of those so that you will be able to recognize them and keep from falling into a dangerous trap, essentially. So let me quickly address two things um, before we go into that. First, you may wonder, why are we looking at the counterfeits instead of the real thing? You know, there's this old story about Federal Reserve agents and how the, the way that they, and it's, it's true, I mean, the way that they learn uh, what's counterfeit and what's not is by studying real currency, right? So that they can, when they get to know it really well, and so they have an understanding of when they come across something fake, they can say, hey, um, I know that that's, that's not the real deal. That's a counterfeit. And that, listen, that's a great illustration, but it doesn't perfectly transfer to reality, okay? Because we've all grown up using real money. I don't think any of us, you know, had parents with a printing press in the garage, you know, that was cranking out fake bills. Um, some of you may have had Confederate money, um, but anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, but, so here's the thing, to put it bluntly, we know what money looks like, but many of us have either grown up under the influence of a false gospel and we haven't realized it, or we've been fooled by our culture into accepting something as a part of the gospel that isn't. And so what I want to do today is, is identify some of the marks of false theology so we'll recognize when they, when, when they depart from and also, since I, 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 try, I try to share the biblical gospel every time I preach, so I don't feel bad about spending some time debunking the fake ones, okay? Um, so secondly, I want to clearly state this, okay? Most of us in our fallen human understanding, we probably assimilate or syncretize uh, some false beliefs that dilute the purity of our Christian message. And so understand, I'm not saying our theology has to be flawless to save us. Okay, we are saved by faith in Christ as expressed by the gospel message. And we can be wrong about some things and still be saved. 
Okay? I want to just make sure that you understand that. But there's at least one false gospel that is so contradictory to the true gospel that we cannot hold both. And that's what Paul's talking about to the, to the Galatians. And that said, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe that all of the others that we're going to look at will necessarily condemn a person who is misled by them. I think one can accept the true gospel and still be uh, deceived in certain areas, okay? But that said, all seven, all seven of these, all seven, can be very dangerous to a person who's led astray by them. And because, because what it does, it, it transfers your faith or it transfers your affections off of God and onto something else. So um, after doing a, a good amount of research and, and hearing, what, uh, what, you know, hearing and reading what other people have said about it and thinking a lot about it, uh, I think there's at least seven false gospels that we encounter in the culture today. And by the way, I want to clarify, the, these false gospels, uh, they exist in the evangelical world. Okay, I'm not talking about cults like the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or New Age cultists. These are heresies, okay, that you are likely to see. The ones we're going to look at today, are, are you're going to see them in mainline churches. You're going to come across these if you go visit various places uh, across America. I'm, I'm going to ask you this real quick. Why don't you all stand up? This is the longest sermon I have ever written, and so I want you to stand up and stretch for a second. Get a little bit of... We're almost to the halfway point, but, but we're not yet. So you might roll your shoulders a little bit, you know. Go get some coffee if you need it. Um, put your pillow away, Dave. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody, you, you can sit back down if you're ready. Um, I'm going to ask you to indulge me by joining in the addition of air quotes just for this little thing here, okay? So in order of discussion, get your quotes up for me. Get your quotes up. In order of discussion, the seven false gospels are, ready? The non-inclusive gospel, the non-exclusive gospel, the moralistic gospel, the permissive gospel, the therapeutic gospel, the prosperity gospel, and the social justice gospel. Gospel. Thank you, fellow air quoters. I appreciate that very much. I personally believe that each of these, if carried to its fullest extent, is either based in works or based in idolatry. Okay? So without further ado, we're going to jump in. Uh, I've stated before, and I 100% believe this, that the gospel is both radically inclusive, okay, and that Christ will receive anyone who comes to him in faith. But it's also radically exclusive because salvation is only through the blood of Christ. The gospel is both inclusive and exclusive, but the counterfeits will tend to, to choose to weigh heavily on one side or the other. So first let's examine the non-inclusive gospel. Okay? These are the folks that tend to approach uh, the faith with something of an elitist perspective. And, and sometimes it's humbly, but sometimes it's, it's pridefully. They're kept Phrase might be expressed as, we're the only Christians, okay? And often this, this takes shape as, as maybe a disdain for other denominations or, or for denominations at all. Um, typically, those who fall into this trap would say that we alone have orthodoxy. In other words, their group is the only one that has a proper understanding of not only the gospel, but of Scripture. 
And they also typically will think that they alone have orthopraxy, meaning their group is the only one that practices Christianity correctly. You know, the, the ordinances, the sacraments, worship, lifestyle, etc. Now, now here's a, frankly, some of that's to be expected. Because after all, if you're a thinking person, if you're trying to be intellectually honest, you're not going to buy into a theological system you disagree with, right? So hopefully you think, well, yeah, I, I think what I believe is right. I think that what I practice is what God wants me to do. But it's the last point that's so dangerous and really brings us into their catchphrase. If they think that salvation requires belonging to their group, I want to assure you, Scripture teaches that salvation requires belonging to Jesus Christ. Not the church of Christ. Not the Catholic church. Not Baptist. Not Methodist. Not Anglican. Not even Texan. Believe it or not. And we could maybe talk about Democrat or Libertarian or Republican. Politics comes into this a lot. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't... I don't believe a person can be a Christian unless they're in my political party. Now, let me tell you, I'm, I'm very, very open about this. I, I vote Republican, and I'll tell you why. Because there's no libertarian ticket yet. But I vote Republican because I believe that it is the party that is so much closer to what Scripture teaches in very, very major areas, uh, particularly, as you know, abortion. Uh, but, but I'm going to tell you this. The Republican Party is not perfect, Okay. And I know some Democrats who say, I don't see how you could be a Christian and vote Republican. I think they're wrong. But there are plenty of who think that just as many of us are Republicans and, and say, I don't see how a person could vote Democrat and be a Christian. Guys, your politics are not what save you. Okay. Enough said. All right. Our perspective should be not that we are the only Christians, but that we are Christians only. You know, instead of identifying with a particular group of believers, let's identify with the person we believe in. Right? Can I get an amen? Thank you. Jesus himself said, For God so loved... Oh, not, not, just, not just a few. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you hear any denomination mentioned in there? I don't. Later in John 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, there's that, that, that pesky whoever again, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That's Jesus who said that. It's pretty powerful. I mean, was it unclear? Was it? No, okay. So, so that's, that's where the non-inclusive gospel disintegrates into oblivion, okay? But what about its cousin, the non-exclusive gospel? You know, people who, who fall under this umbrella are often labeled as universalists, although that, that's not technically correct. Universalists believe everyone goes to heaven, um, while most people who identify as Christian and still ascribe to, to this lie here would be more likely to say all roads lead to heaven, meaning that, that anyone who sincerely believes any faith is acceptable to God. And, and they tend to use the old uh, three blind men handling an elephant. You know, you've heard this, right? Describing an elephant or four blind men. Um, it, it, in case you haven't heard it, it's 
the story goes, there's three or four blind men, and, and they are supposed to describe an elephant, but they're touching different parts of the elephant, right? So one says, feels the side, oh, the elephant's like a wall, and one grabs his leg, oh, he's like a column, and one is holding the ear, he said, oh, the elephant is like a, a big leaf. One grabs the trunk, oh, the elephant is like a, like a snake, you know? So they all have these different ideas of what the elephant is. And, and so for these folks who, who, believe, who believe in the non-exclusive gospel, truth Generally speaking, truth is always considered to be subjective, okay? It depends on what part of the elephant you're touching, is what they would say. And because of that, they will typically argue that all religions are equally valid, okay? They think that, that Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, etc., all in the same place spiritually, all worship the same God, and for them, unity is valued over all else, including over objective truth. And these are the folks that you'll find them championing, uh, championing, championing, is that a word? Supporting <laughs> um, interfaith worship services. And, and they'll claim that we're all worshiping, you know, the same God. Here's the thing, okay? The elephant in the room has already clearly spoken. Okay? For, for, for the purpose of opening the eyes of the blind, God himself, through the word and through the word made flesh. Okay, because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God has revealed himself to mankind saying, this is who I am. We don't have to guess. He tells us really openly who he is. And scripture makes it clear that Jesus is the only way to the Father. How do we know? He said so. If he were just a, a wise guy or a good teacher, would he make a comment like that? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty clear. <laughs> and then on top of that, you got the Apostle Peter when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. He said, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. To deny him is to deny the Father. So again, the biblical gospel is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. So now we come to the, the, the false gospel that Paul was writing about, one that, that completely disregards the gospel of grace. I've referred to it as the moralistic gospel. Not because it, it insists on good morals, which obviously God commands, but because its view of salvation is works-based. And their catchphrase might be, uh, God saves those who keep his law. Or even God saves, uh, I'm not going to go there yet. Yes, I will. Or even God saves good people. And the irony of this perspective is that it, it, it's really a reflection of nearly other, every, every single other religion there is in the world. Um, besides Christianity. You know, it, almost every religion teaches a worse, Islam, for instance, uh, you guys know I've been having great conversations with my neighbor across the street. He tells me about Islam. I tell him about Jesus. Um, you know, their faith teaches that Allah weighs in the balance a person's, uh, the amount of sin in their life versus the amount of good works that they've done. And if the scale tilts, you know, the right way, then, then God will forgive their failures and he'll accept them on personal merits. Sadly, many professing Christians have a similar view. And of all the, the, the possible false gospels, this is the one that most blatantly contradicts the truth. So much so, again, that Paul specifies a person who thinks following the law will save them is cursed. 
Now, it's, it's been rightly pointed out that Paul wrote Galatians with regard to Judaizers who were trying to get people to follow the Old Testament. Okay, so, so oftentimes people will say, well, the New Covenant still requires us to do good works, though, before we can be justified. But, but here's the thing. Is that what the Bible teaches? No! If you read Romans 4, Paul talks about the one who is justified without works. It is by grace, through faith. We're going to see that in a moment, but before we do that, just let me mention a couple of other traits that often mark a person who are deceived by the moralistic false gospel. They will often see sins as the problem afflicting us rather than sin. You know, because they view our actions as the issue, as the problem, instead of our depraved hearts. And because of that, they, they, they put great emphasis on behavior modification when they ought to be asking God to give them a new heart. You know, moralism has a bonus. <laughs> Typically, a person who has accepted the lie of the moralistic gospel will argue, but I'm a good person. And usually that, it's a result of comparing yourself to other people rather than comparing yourself to God's perfect standard. And it is a dangerous lie. You remember the story, Luke 18, right? The tax collector and the Pharisee. Don't compare yourself to other people. That is a trap. You might be better than so-and-so, but you can't be good enough for God. Mm -mm. I want to encourage you, drop that phrase. Don't even say, I'm a good person. Just stop saying it. Instead, accept what the Bible teaches, that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. No one's good enough for God. No one keeps his commandments. We are all too flawed to achieve that. And as such, no one can be justified. Not, not only will they not be, it's, it's not just a will not, cannot be justified by following the law. We can't do it, that's why. <laughs> and so like Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's faith that saves us, not our works. It's faith. One of the clearest passages in the Bible on this subject is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You probably have memorized some of y'all, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the opposite of that is moralistic gospel. So we're going to discuss now the ugly opposite of the moralistic gospel, and that is the permissive gospel. Whereas moralism tries to earn righteousness through the law, the false gospel of permissive gospel is lawless. Its adherents believe that God is love only. Right? The Bible does say God is love, does it not? It does. But as C.S. Lewis said, sometimes people flip that on his head and they say, well, love is God then. It's not how that works. The last word there when they say God is love only, that's, that last, that, that's key, Okay. Scripture teaches God is love because He is, but folks that by this counterfeit gospel claim that, well, since God is love, He would never punish sin. Tell that to Sodom. Tell that to the Canaanites whom God had His people destroy for their wickedness and for their child sacrifice. Tell that to, to the nation of Israel, God's own you know, uh, people that he said, I'm done with you, when he gave them over to the Assyrians because of their idolatry and their disobedience and their, their wickedness. Look, 
for whatever reason, that's, that's their perspective, the, the permissive gospel. They basically teach that grace and forgiveness become a license to sin. And what's even worse is they teach that immorality can be sanctified. That God is somehow now okay because the law changed. They try to sanctify same-sex marriage. They try to sanctify abortion. They try to, to sanctify Marxist socialism. You know, and, and, and all of these things have flown a Christian flag over themselves and waved it around. And guys, listen, we're not saved by our works, but those who are saved must turn away from sin. Those who have succumbed to this, this pernicious counterfeit, they, they believe that Jesus can be our Savior, but without ever really being our Lord. And I think they're deceived. And much of the New Testament, much of the New Testament was written to expose the truth, which is that if you are justified by Christ, you will be being sanctified. Sanctification always follows justification. Now, did you realize, this was something that kind of hit me, and I was like, wow, when I was studying for this, and maybe I knew it a long time ago, but I guess I'd forgotten, I don't know, or maybe I never knew it, but this is part of why Jesus died, not just so that we could be righteous before God, but so that we could become more like him in this life too. Did you know that? It's part of why he died. It's not just what he commands, it's why he died. Not simply that we might be justified, but that we might be made holy in him. You know, Scripture bears this out. Titus 2, it says that, that, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us so that we could be lawless. No, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, uh, to purify for himself, it says, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's your works. That's what justification does to us. It sanctifies us. We desire to do good works. Listen, if you think God is going to just smile and wink at wickedness, remember that God is not only love. Scripture also teaches he is a consuming fire that consumes his adversaries. He does not allow sin in his presence, which is why each of us sinners, us vile wretches, each of us must be covered by the blood of Christ. You know, I heard recently that Somebody has rewritten the first verse of Amazing Grace and removed the word wretch. That's so sad. Right? I know. <laughs> if, if you've truly been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you can look at yourself and you can know, I am a wretch. I do not deserve this goodness, this kindness that God has lavished on me through His Son. I don't deserve it. Why would you want to take that out of the song? Because you don't get it. Anyway, sorry, not in the notes. Um, just God wants us to be covered by the blood of Christ and to act like it. And we're going to look at some more scripture, uh, one more scripture really that addresses this because I think it's too important to leave out. This, this is from the book of 1 John, which, you know, I mentioned it this morning. It, it, it contains a magnificent series of litmus tests to determine whether a person is truly saved. You know, Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, this is how you do it. Read 1 John and apply these. He says, okay, anyway, just listen. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices, there's that word again, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Does that scare you a little bit? Here's the thing, you've got to put that in context with the rest of 1 John, which also says, basically, that if you say you're without sin, then you're calling God a liar, Right? It says, and if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then chapter 2, it goes on to say, but if anybody does sin, we've got this wonderful mediator. So, so the, the thing is not to say that nobody ever sins anymore, you know. I want to be sure to keep the second half in context with the first. When he says, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning, we have to recognize that John is referring to the unrepentant and habitual practice of sin. He's not talking about stumbling into it. You know, slipping and falling and, you know, temporarily backsliding. You know, he's not talking about saying you're never going to struggle with sinful desires for the rest of your life. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's talking about treating God's forgiveness as license to sin with impunity. That's what he's talking about. It was called antinomianism in that day. Lawlessness. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 referred to lawlessness for a professing Christian, as trampling on the blood of Christ. The repentant sinner, listen, this is, I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say today. The repentant sinner, excuse me, the repentant saint who still sins is safe. The repentant saint who still sins is safe, but the unrepentant sinner who thinks he's a saint is in greater danger than a person who has never heard the truth. Right out of 1 Peter, guys. Number five and six on the list of counterfeit gospels are ugly siblings, um, but they're different enough for separate headings. First is what is known as uh, the therapeutic gospel which is typically just a man-centered religion that caters to self-centered people. Their catchphrase might be, God wants me to be happy. And in this warped view of Christianity, the gospel isn't really about the glory of God as it's shown in, in, in his love for sinful man and sending his son. Instead, the good news is really about me. It glorifies me. That's the therapeutic gospel. Please understand, there is, there is a very healthy type of God esteem that comes from, from wrapping your mind around the biblical gospel and realizing how much God loves you, okay? But when the focus is on self-esteem, it's no longer about God's glory. And folks in this camp would say that the purpose of faith is for my self-actualization. I believe in order to see my dreams come true. It's, it's kind of a Christianized version of, of the power of positive thinking. You know, people who teach this will often take scriptures like Psalm 37, 4. You may be familiar with that one. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. People who teach this will flip scriptures like that upside down. And instead of seeing it as delighting in the Lord results in getting more of the Lord, they think, well, God desires to fulfill all my wishes. And that's not God. What is that? <laughs> that's a genie. Yes. Yes. If we're after God purely to get what we want, which is something other than God, guess what that is? That's mercenary. That's what that is. 
And, and don't get me wrong, God promises us wonderful things when we seek Him, but those things were never supposed to be the point. His ultimate desire is, is not to make us happy. Scripture teaches that God wants to make us holy. He wants to sanctify us and make us more like his son, which glorifies him in the process because he's taking a wretch like me. He's making me more like Jesus. And it doesn't, it doesn't look like self-indulgence. It looks like self-denial. You know, Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. There's a whole lot we could unpack there, but for now, let's suffice to say the gospel is not about you, and it's not about me, okay? It's about Jesus. Now, a very similar uh, and unfortunately still pervasive counterfeit today is what many call the prosperity gospel, which, like the therapeutic gospel, tends toward idolatry. Well, well, possibly it might even be more presumptuous because it sometimes seems to take on God's responsibilities, and I'll explain what I mean shortly. But, but the catchphrase of a person deceived by this counterfeit might be, faith gives me health and wealth. I know we are all familiar with people who've grown famous, you know, from, from teaching this over the years. Big name, big hair, you know, um, but... Most of the time, they get rich and their followers don't. Some of the teachings that they espouse are good Christians will achieve worldly success. That's what they say. Health and wealth are the two main things, but, but power often and prestige and, and, and position are named as well. And the theology typically goes like this. If you just believe hard enough, God will give it to you. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. Bingo! <laughs> yeah, it was the voice, wasn't it? <laughs> 150 pounds of steel. No, anyway, it's, he actually said that. In a, I'm sorry, I didn't. I, I, watched, I, I watched him twice for a laugh. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't say that, but he said, today's, after the, this is my Bible, he said, today's passage is going to be from John chapter 10, and he quotes, and he says, um, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the very next sentence was, today we're going to talk about dieting. I'm not joking. That is, it's awful. It, I, it's it, moving on. Oh, I lost my train of thought, sorry. Uh, i got to find my spot on the, on the manuscript here. It, it's, it's. It's a more concrete thing than the therapeutic gospel. Like the therapeutic gospel says God wants me to be happy. This says God wants to give you X, Y, and Z. Okay? And one of the most damaging things about this belief is that a person's circumstances are often attributed to their faith or their lack thereof. So, so if you're not rich and successful, this teaching says, well, you must not have enough faith, right? That's what they say. This, in spite of the fact that Jesus warned about the dangers of wealth and the danger of materialism more than any other single subject that he talked about. This teaching also says that people of faith shouldn't get sick. 
Because God doesn't want believers to suffer. You know, even more than the last point, I think this is very plainly and provably false from the Scripture, but we'll get there. Uh, the, the prosperity gospel also famously teaches that we can name and claim blessing in our lives. By misapplying various scriptures, the teaching goes that we can speak things into being. And I find this to be the most presumptive claim of all because scripture says that God can speak things into being. Not us. If you're God, raise your hand. For the record, no one's hand is up. We don't have this capability. I just, anyway. So let's talk about how the Bible itself responds to these claims. Um, perhaps the most obvious is, despite what prosperity teachers might claim, our best life is not now. Amen? Okay, frankly, I, I, I do not find, I don't find this counterfeit to be the most dangerous of the seven. It's probably, it, it's, but it is the one I can come up with the most scriptural examples right off the top of my head to just destroy it with, okay? Because the prosperity gospel is not biblical, like, at all. <laughs> you really have to proof text uh, and pull things completely out of context to make it say the things that people try to make it say. Um, Jesus stated to his disciples that the world would hate them, right? He said they're going to persecute you. He said they're going to mistreat you. And just, just going through the list of the 11 remaining apostles after Judas and how they all died, not a single one of them was rich. Not a single one. And the only one that lived to old age was John. And by the way, they tried to boil him in oil. They just couldn't get it hot enough. The apostle Paul, who is the most faithful Christian to ever live, okay, referred to a thorn that was given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, to, to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I guess it was the Lord's will for him to suffer this malady. It was also Paul who wrote, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be promoted. Oh, wait, that's not what he said. He said, we'll be persecuted. <laughs> you know, suffering, if suffering is one of God's ways of sanctifying us, which Scripture re repeatedly says it is, maybe we shouldn't assume that life is going to be hunky-dory and pain-free. I was talking to my dad about this sermon, and, he's, and I was telling him about the prosperity gospel. He said, oh, yeah, go try to preach that in a nursing home. It's so, it's just so provably wrong. Oh, Paul also said, um, God gives life to the dead. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So see, God has sovereignty, in other words, to name and claim things. And as far as I've seen, Scripture doesn't give us that right. All right, we're going to finish up. Uh, you may have noticed these first six counterfeits kind of come in pairs. They're either, you know, opposites or fraternal twins. But this last false gospel, this has ties to the moralistic gospel, but it's unique in its ubiquity in the evangelical church. And by that, I mean it's everywhere. It's everywhere because it has, it has saturated our culture in just the last few years. This dangerous counterfeit is the social justice gospel. The social justice movement is scary because it is revisionist in almost every way. 
It seeks to reform society. It is refashioning history, and I believe that it is trying to replace the biblical gospel. And the social catchphrase for this moment, uh, for this movement, they'd probably say that their catchphrase is justice for all or equity for everyone, but I think what it really preaches is atonement through social action. And this isn't as well known as it ought to be, I don't think, which is why this is so widely accepted in the church and so dangerous. You know, many pastors, including famous pastors, have been making statements that the biblical gospel is incomplete because they claim social justice is a gospel issue, when in fact it is not. Now, treating people rightly and fairly is a moral issue, and Christ commands it, okay? And so, you got to understand this. Those who believe the gospel, we should be working really hard to be loving and gracious to all. And we should be really striving to be just and to be merciful. And we should be pushing our society in that direction. But the gospel message is clear. It's about who Jesus is and what God did, not about what we need to do. Don't mix them up. becomes a works-based gospel if you mix them up. I think to, to confuse the message of justification with anything else is a less-than-pure gospel. And then to complicate matters, the, the social justice movement requires recompense for redemption. In order to be forgiven, it teaches many people must apologize for who God made them to be and apologize for the blessings that, that they've been given in their lives and then must make restitution for the sins of other people. Now, don't get that mixed up with praying for forgiveness on behalf of your nation, because that happened in Scripture, okay? Our nation's got some awful sins in our past and our current. I, I so hope that one day people are going to look at abortion the same way we look at slavery now. I, I, I think it's coming. But anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Even then, forgiveness, under the social justice gospel, forgiveness is never really fully given. It's just not. You can't ever be redeemed in their gospel, so-called gospel. Additionally, this counterfeit elevates external traits, such as nationality, skin color, financial status, rather than internal traits, such as kindness and humility. And, you know, actually, I may do a deeper treatment on the, uh, the social justice movement one day, but for today, I'll just say this. The Bible clearly denounces all of this, okay? Friends, atonement is only through the blood of Christ. That's it. Being made at one with God comes through the sacrifice of Christ. And the redemption that we receive isn't given as a result of anything that we've done or could even ever do. It's a gift. Are gifts free? Yes, they are. Romans 3 says, all have sinned, and it's the infinitive tense in Greek, it ought to say, and continually fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A propitiation means a sacrifice that appeases wrath. 
It's free. We don't achieve redemption. We receive redemption. The Bible is clear that we should show no partiality either based on externals. That goes either direction. You know, there's a scripture in the the Old Testament where it talks about when God is talking about what is just. He says, don't show favor to a rich man or a poor man because he is poor. It's about who's, who's right in that case. Justice is justice. It doesn't need to have uh, any kind of, you know, modifier behind it to explain what it is. Justice is what is right. All Christians are made in the image of God, and all non-Christians are made in the image of God. But all of us who believe we are one in the body of Christ, and we Christians need to stop focusing on things that divide us. And you're saying, well, what are we, you just talked about seven false gospels. Yes, because we need to focus on Jesus who unites us in grace and truth. It's not these other things. It's about Jesus. The whole Bible from front to back points to Jesus. He is the key. Just trust in Jesus. And, and, and we do that by believing the biblical gospel, which I am not ashamed of, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. The other counterfeits are distractions at best and damning at worst. They will not and cannot save, but the gospel of Jesus does. So I want to encourage you, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you have the chance to do that. If you believe, if you believe, give your life to him. Receive him as your Lord. Receive him as as Savior. And if you do that, then he commands you to take the further step of making that confession of faith and, and letting people know and being baptized. That's what the word teaches But I just want to reiterate, none of us are good people. None of us are going to heaven because we're good people. But we can spend eternity with Christ because of what he did for us.